Well, it is Memorial Day weekend. I wanted to pause before I begin and ask if there is anyone here who is a veteran or a current member of the U.S. Armed Forces. Would you mind raising your hand for me if you have served in the United States Armed Forces or uh, you are currently serving in the United States Armed Forces? Would you mind letting me acknowledge you this morning? Anyone at all? A generation of pacifists we are. We had one in the first service. Uh, let, me, let me broaden the scope of that then and say, uh, do, do, would any of you have a family member or a friend uh, who gave their life in the line of duty serving in our, in our armed forces? Joseph's got anyone else? Yeah, some buds there. Yeah, some of us have known people who lost their lives defending freedom. And the purpose of Memorial Day is to remember those who've suffered for our freedoms. It is, in fact, uh, one of those times where it is a fairly easy softball of an opportunity for pastors to get up and talk about suffering because when it comes to our country, it's fairly easy to see that there were great sacrifices and have been great sacrifices made so that we can have freedom. And so we see the value of suffering in that context where suffering becomes more intolerable to us as Westerners, where suffering becomes more difficult to explain, certainly as a pastor, is when it seems random and has no purpose. We think of 9-11 in this case. You know, I, I reflect on the terrible events of September 11, 2001, and I think it just seemed to have no purpose at all. And yet out of that, we, we saw amazing stories of heroism. And even just this morning, a friend and I were we're reflecting on, on how different things were for a while after that in our country and how political left and political right seemed to get along for a while and how people were seemingly kinder to each other for a while. And now we know it's election season and those days are gone. But it did make you think there was something unique about that season of national suffering that produced something that was actually very beautiful. And so when I think about terrible situations, sometimes I think they tend to bring out our very best. When I grew up, um, and then when I was in college, my parents moved to the, to the Gulf Coast of Florida where I lived for a long time, specifically before moving out here eight years ago. And part of living in the Gulf Coast is hurricanes and the restoration of people's homes and churches and different things that happen when hurricanes come and just wreck cities uh, one storm at a time. And what I'd see during those storms, which were multiple times a year, is people coming out of the woodwork to actually help one another, regardless of whether or not the person was of your political or cultural persuasion. You were just there to help. Help was received. Help was given without question. And here's the, here's the rub. And the most difficult part about talking about suffering is that as Westerners, and again, if you're from another part of the globe, forgive me for speaking this generally. I'm generally talking to the people who live here. But as Westerners, we have been conditioned from birth that suffering is bad and that it should be avoided at all costs. And if you don't believe me, here's a little experiment for you this weekend as you're relaxing in front of your Memorial Day television binge. Every commercial come, that comes on, uh, give yourself a treat when the commercial doesn't offer you a product that is designed to ease your suffering. 
you'll find that you won't have very many treats at the end of your time in front of the television. Everything that is advertised, whether it is a new car or whether it is a medication or whether it is food or whether it is anything, is all designed to ease pain, whether it be emotional or physical or just kind of cultural discomfort. This is what our whole culture is built on. And so we have been trained, brainwashed, if you will, that any time you experience difficulty or suffering, you should, you should hate it. You should despise it. You should push it away. When we transition in the letter that we're going to begin studying today from the New Testament, what you need to understand and what I need to get a grasp on is my embedded Western love of comfort is going to make reading James really difficult because he has very little interest in us being comfortable. He has tons of interests in us experiencing Jesus in a meaningful way, and he is going to make the case to the people who are getting his letter, which includes us, that one of the great ways you can experience joy in the Christian life is through suffering and through trials, and that by avoiding them or cursing them, all you're doing is cheating yourself out of an opportunity to see something great happen in your life. James, the brother of Jesus, is writing to believers who are being persecuted for their proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. You can look in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 1, and see that the persecution of the church began to take place. And what happened was is that the church commanded by Jesus to go to Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth, like the rest of us, found themselves very comfortable staying right here in Jerusalem. And so when it was time to go, they needed what you'd say a little push. And, and so the scattering of the church did not come by virtue of a bunch of really committed believers who were like, hey, now that we've heard about the gospel, let's all go. It was, you know what, this is really great. And then persecution happened and poof, they were scattered. And you can read all throughout the book of Acts how this message went forth and how wherever they went, they got persecuted too. And so James, according to Acts 8, is one of the apostles that stayed behind in Jerusalem. Everybody else took off. They stayed. And from base camp, he writes this letter and begins his letter by saying this in James 1, 1. Quote, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, I think it's significant for two reasons. One is, he refers to himself as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, his master is Jesus Christ. So clearly, the brother of James has got it in his head that his half-brother, his older half-brother, Jesus, is not just a man. He is very God of very God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ now. James doesn't say, God and my big brother Jesus. He says, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he addresses the letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now, there are some who think that he's speaking to just Jews, but metaphorically speaking, He's speaking to the 12 tribes of ancient Israel and that in the New Testament, Gentile converts are also called spiritual Israel. The characteristic that 
the recipients of this letter share is that they were dispersed, a referencing to the scattering of Christians that resulted from persecution. Passages in James will seem to validate this assertion on a number of levels, and most scholars agree that James, the brother of Jesus, is writing this letter sometime before A.D. 49. Obviously, in James's case, he's a post-resurrection convert, having grown up in the family with Jesus. Like his brothers, he was one of the ones that was skeptical of who Jesus now thought he was. And, and somewhere along the line of watching his older brother get crucified and then rose from the dead, you got the idea that James experienced new life in Christ and realized, as did his brother Jude, whose letter we previously studied in the series, that they were dealing with something that they could not have comprehended just growing up in his family. Because James has a perspective about who Jesus is, we think it's worth studying it from his perspective. And James is talking to people who genuinely believe that Christ is alive and they're willing to suffer and die for that occasion. Now, I want to be clear about something before we get started studying another bold letter from a blood brother. And that is, in James's book, you will see that the response of culture to the message of the gospel is never a consideration of its successful proclamation. I want to say that again because it's important in our generation to hear how everyone responds to the proclamation of the gospel and the truths associated with the gospel is not necessarily always a good indicator of whether or not it has been successfully proclaimed. There are some, I refer to them as the lost Protestant church of America, who would worry and be concerned that if culture reacts negatively to a particular doctrine from Scripture, that we should change that belief or cast Scripture in a less than authoritative light. You see, these lost Christian leaders are afraid that our faith will become culturally irrelevant and speculate that if we don't want to lose our seat at the popular kids' table, we better quickly adapt. And this is ludicrous. The first century church was being beheaded fed to lions, burned on poles to light Nero's gardens. As well, in James's letter, believers are going to be said to be ostracized socially and suffering under cultural financial pressures. And never at any times does either James or these Christians ever believe that suffering isn't a part of the life of a Christ follower. They embraced it as a means by which people who'd be watching them would know that Jesus was really alive and reigning on high. Believers weren't just proclaiming love one another. If they had been, nobody would have ever tried to kill them. They were proclaiming that salvation was found in the risen Christ alone and that Jesus was God's son and reigned on high worshiped as God, and that this same God-man would be coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. Do you want a taste of their message from Acts chapter 4? Here we go, verses 11 through 13 of Acts 4. Quote, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. 
Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they noted that these men had been with Jesus. This doesn't seem to be one of those uh, gushy, love one another messages. They're telling, James and John are telling, Peter and, uh, and the gang are telling Peter's saying, you know, you, you rejected the chief cornerstone, and he's become the capstone. So these people are not pleased with what's being said. If you think the Christian life is about making you happy, if I think it's about making me popular or wealthy, James would say from the get-go here in James chapter 1, you've got it all wrong. James recalls the teaching of his blood brother Jesus and won't let us forget it. John fifteen twenty, Jesus says, quote, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And this was the perspective of the earliest of first century believers who were persecuted. These faithful followers remember Jesus' words, like the old Timex watch commercials. They took a licking and kept on ticking, you know? Uh, they, they at times suffered beatings, but through their mutual encouragement to, to each other, they, they never thought of retreating. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42, demonstrates another enduring opportunity for these folks to suffer and how they actually considered it joy. Listen to what Acts 5, 40 through 42 says, quote, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's significant. And again, it it brings to a, a, a roundabout conclusion of my introduction here which is that they did not say, oh, goodness, the people are beating us. They're really upset that we're talking about Jesus as the Christ. Let's stop saying that. They said, what a joy. We know he's the Christ. We've been considered worthy of being beaten for Jesus. What a joy. Boy, it's so different than some of what you hear going on in the world of people who would claim to follow Christ. What James, the blood brother of Jesus, would like us to see is that in God's wisdom, he uses trials to bring us new life, fresh, vibrant, spiritual life. In the same way that suffering, pain, and exercise actually builds muscle and increases health, suffering spiritually, struggling spiritually, brings new life to our souls. Is your soul dormant? Do you feel lethargic spiritually? I've been there. I know what that's like. One thing we can assure ourselves of is the key to vibrant Christianity is not more affluence. Let's get more stuff. Let's occupy our minds and hearts with more crud It doesn't work. It doesn't scratch that thing inside of us. What Jesus is calling us to is a following after him that produces a struggle and a suffering and trials 
And these trials are actually good. I hope by the end of today's message, you'll see what I'm talking about. And you wouldn't leave here thinking you have to be some kind of masochistic fool who goes around looking for pain. I'm not encouraging you to do that. I would hope that we could all walk away from James's teaching here in the early part of James 1, 1 through 8 and say, I am no longer going to rail against and venomously spew hatred when discomfort comes my way. I'm going to see it as an indicator light that something godly is coming into my life. So I have two thoughts for you today. In this passage, we'll reread the sections 2 through 4 and then 5 through 8. But the first of those two thoughts is this. James is saying to us, we suffer trials to become mature followers of Christ. You ever wonder why you suffer trials? James is going to make it very clear. It is the pathway to maturity. Trials are the pathway to yours and my maturity. Here's verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, various kinds, right away, we can say it's going to be different for everybody. I don't know what trial you're experiencing, but James is saying there is great joy to be had. You can count it as joy when you face these trials. And he continues in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Maturity in Christ is the goal. And James is saying that suffering, trials, these things are a means to that end. And so they ultimate, ultimately produce great joy in us. Now, let's get this on the table from the get-go. When I read Count It All Joy, when you meet trials of various kinds, my first thought is this guy is masochistic. There's something not right in his head. I love suffering. I don't know too many people who love suffering. In the moment, it never makes you think, wow, this is something I'd do again. In, in the worst experiences of my life, I would wish on my enemies most of the time. And so let alone would I sign up for them again. Like, oh, that was so fun being dumped by my college girlfriend. I can't wait for that to happen a second time. That never has ever been my thought. And yet James says that in this, there's a bit of pure joy that is available to us. What James is saying is not, hey, endure suffering. He's saying embrace it. He's telling us to embrace suffering. It is a means of growing spiritually. Bring it on. Now, this isn't a new thought. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So many of us can say we've looked back on periods of our life that were difficult and thought, you know, I wouldn't go through that again, but it did produce some good things. There was a purpose to it. Life in general is difficult because our world is broken, and so is our nature. We, I can testify when I say we, of course, I mean me. Uh, I know for certain that I am foolishly in pursuit of autonomy from God and foolishly, unabashedly in pursuit of the glory that belongs to the one who created us. God knows this about us. He knows that given endless supplies of resources, we would forget that our daily bread is provided by him. How many of us have drifted off to sleep at night dreaming of the day when 
an unknown relative leaves us millions of dollars or we strike the lottery and the next thing you know, we think we're going to become this really generous people. Of course, I'd give 5% or 10% to charity, but you know, some of us even go, I give half of it away. Every rich person I've ever known has told me that if you're not generous with a little bit, you will never be when you get a lot of it. Jesus keeps most of us from that kind of wealth because we would forget where it came from really quickly. I can testify to that firsthand. I never struggle then more than when I am in times of plenty. I wish that weren't the truth. We've seen how easily we forget about God. The Israelites knew this too. That's why God would not let them in the desert pile up their manna from heaven from day to day. They had to daily go out and get it because it's so part of our nature to want to not have to depend on God, let alone other people, that what we want to do is just amass all kinds of crud for ourselves so we never have to ask anybody for anything. So we never have to humble ourselves and say we need another person. The goal here is self-sufficiency. This is the story of human beings. And you know what? It's my story. Uh, I have had coffee with many of you, and you've heard me tell the tale of my first experience out here in California. It wasn't a good one. I was actually pastoring a church and failing at, an, at, an, at a high level and then started crumbling internally under the pressure of all of it. And God used my life's biggest failure to break what had become a habit of self-dependence in me where I had gone through the motions because I had always done very well in the ministries that I'd been a part of. I'd seen a lot of quote-unquote success. And so it made sense that I would come out to California and sure, I was going to knock it out of the park again. Why not? And foolishly, I just went through my day-to-day motions as if I got this, God. I really don't need to daily call out to you and daily cry out for grace and daily recognize that unless you hold back the storms of life, they're going to wreck my world. And God loved me enough to let all hell break loose both externally and internally in my life and smooshed me and reminded me that I needed him. See, suffering has the purpose of bringing us to maturity in life, helping us to see that real life is not found in the abundance of possessions, but instead walking with our creator, Jesus. Jesus, through whom all things were made. Tim Keller says this in his great book about suffering. Quote, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. And contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. And contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, which by the way, mind you, is the culture in which we live, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. You know, the obvious and I think most beautiful example of purposeful suffering is the fact that we are reading the letter of James here ourselves. I mean, think about it. The gospel went forward from Jerusalem by persecution into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The church was scattered, and 2,000 years later, here sit we, 
I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if the people hadn't been persecuted out of Jerusalem and gone into the world to share the gospel. And then James would have never had this letter for us to sit around and use as a communal discussion piece, the word of God. We would have never had these things had not a group of people suffered. I wouldn't know you, let alone be sitting here having this conversation with you, if people hadn't suffered. So there is a tremendous purpose. We suffer trials to become mature followers of Jesus. This is the ultimate purpose. But there's great comfort, too, in knowing that God's purposes transcend most of what we understand. Now, here's a second thought for you today, because it's not enough to know that trials produce maturity. We've got to kind of sort of know the nuts and bolts of how this maturity comes about in our lives. And, and James talks about it in verses 5 through 8, that we achieve maturity by humble reliance on Jesus. Through the experiences of difficulty and pain, we find ourselves in greater measure depending on Jesus, and this is what produces maturity. Just by virtue of being in his presence, needing him, we find ourselves learning from him and watching him master our lives. I begin reading again in verse 5, quote, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." You see, the maturity that we develop spiritually happens as we are driven to prayer and encounter with the Holy Spirit. We are called that if we lack things, we're to ask for him. And then when we have lack in our life, it is for the purpose of bringing us into that discussion with him. But I've got to cover a piece of really bad theology that was injected into my system at a young Christian age, and perhaps some of you have experienced this too. It's worth mentioning because you can hear it on TV still from one of these health and wealth evangelists. What they'll tell you, poorly translated and interpreted, is that when James is talking about somebody who believes and has faith without doubting that this is somehow or another you, by force of your own will, amassing enough super faith to get what you want from God. And so you tell God what you want, and then you kind of wrestle with him, and don't doubt, and then like make yourself feel really bad and shame yourself into a corner if you have any doubts at all, and really be super faith person, and that will produce exactly what you want and need in this life. And that you can't afford to be double-minded, so you just kind of really mind-numbingly walk through your day saying, I'm going to have what I want. I'm going to have what I want in the name of Jesus. I'm going to have what I want. And this really is how a lot of people who are Christians have been taught to live their lives. And I want you to know without question, in this context, that's most certainly not what James is talking about. He's not talking about you and I having enough faith to believe God for what we want. He's talking about a double-minded person, and to be double-minded is exactly what it says. You functionally live your life with two complete separate mindsets. Ironically, the prosperity gospel people can relate to this because they aren't talking about finding joy in life's trials. They're talking about using God to make life easier for themselves. 
Let me let D.A. Carson explain it even better when he writes about verse 6. Great theologian, D.A. Carson, he says, the doubting James warns about is not that of a person who wonders whether or not God will answer this particular request or that of an introspective doubter who struggles with faith. Instead, it is that of a person who is double-minded, a phrase with a close equivalent in the Psalms, and which is the opposite of trusting God's from one's whole heart. In other words, this kind of doubter is the person who is not wholly committed to God, but plays safe, if you will, by praying. Their real interest is an advancement in this world, but they also want to enjoy some of God's blessings now and go to heaven when they die. Such a person will not get wisdom, James says. In fact, such a person will not receive anything at all from God. You see, what James is saying is you can't use God for your own ends and expect that he's going to answer you whenever you want. He's calling you to relationship, to depth. He's calling you to maturity, humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit. James like his brother Jude and the other apostles, were suffering persecution. Churches across the Roman world were enduring real pain that wasn't escapable by the saying of a magic prayer of faith. What James is saying is that our trials produce maturity as we lean in more dependently on the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We grow mature through trials because they remind us of our constant need of God's provision. And this was the testimony of the Apostle Paul as well, the Apostle to the Gentile world, the one who saw the third heaven and lived to tell about it, who saw massive conversions of faith and got to experience the the thrill of sharing the gospel with the leadership of his government and in incredible places of influence in Rome with the great thinkers of the day. In the middle of all of this amazing accomplishment, all this success in the world as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul was still struggling with his base nature, which was his own pride. Look at me. Look at how much I've accomplished. Look at my pedigree. Look at what I've done compared to the others. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. The apostle Paul writes, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. See, Paul had an issue with being conceited. That's why he would mention it twice. See, Paul had to have suffering, difficulty in his life. It tethered him to reality, which is every breath is a gift from God let alone every success in life. Now, at the root of this ability to deal with suffering is a confidence that God is sovereign or he rules over all of mankind's affairs and decisions. And that means that God knows when people are going to commit evil actions and God superintends those decisions to bring about the good that he intends. You know that your Father in heaven never wrings his hands. He may weep with those who suffer as Jesus wept with his friend Lazarus, but at no time does he ever think, I wish I'd have been here. I could have kept them from dying. He says, I'm going to resurrect him from the dead, but I'm still sorrowful in my heart for the pain you're feeling. 
But this is going to be glorious for the Father. At no time does God ever say, I didn't see that coming. He superintends these decisions to bring about his purposes. James, the brother of the risen Jesus, knows this better than most. He watched his big brother Jesus be betrayed, turned over to the Romans to be tortured, and watched him die on a cross, then resurrect from the dead. Jesus was allowed to suffer at the hands of evil men. However, those evil events were merely playing into the hands of a sovereign God who knows exactly what he's doing. That is why James can say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When the stuff hits the fan, that was James's indicator that God was about to do something great. When trials and suffering came, his experience with his older brother Jesus told him something glorious is right on the horizon. Count it all joy. See, James wanted God's movement in his life more than he wanted comfort. James could see difficulty as a sign that God was about to do great work in him and in others. Suffering is the means of producing something beautiful. And you can either embrace that, or you can kind of foolishly and pointlessly spend your whole life complaining about it, which absolutely benefits you not at all. And it won't finish, and it won't end the suffering. This world is just difficult. The joy is that God superintends the little irritations on a given day or the big problems on a given day to bring about something beautiful in our lives. James could see this. You know, for all of our reflecting in the month of September about 9-11, we've sort of kind of forgotten that that same time period in 1776 um, also saw another tragedy, but a beautiful tragedy happened in Manhattan. You see, on September 10th, 1776, George Washington asked for a volunteer for an extremely dangerous mission to gather intelligence behind enemy lines before the coming Battle of Harlem Heights. Captain Nathan Hale of the 19th Regiment of the Continental Army stepped forward and subsequently became one of the first known American spies of the Revolutionary War. Disguised as a Dutch schoolmaster, the Yale University-educated Hale slipped behind British lines on Long Island and then successfully gathered information about British troop movements for the next several weeks. While Hale was behind enemy lines, the British invaded the island of Manhattan. They took control of the city on September 15, 1776. When the city was set on fire on September 20th, 1776, British soldiers were put on high alert for sympathizers to the Patriot cause. The following evening on September 21st, Hale was captured while sailing Long Island Sound trying to cross back into the American-controlled territory. He was interrogated by British General William Howe, and when it was discovered he was carrying incriminating documents, he was ordered to be executed for spying and legend holds that when Hale was asked if he had any last words, he replied with those now famous words, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. You see, it's 
It's Memorial Day. We look back and we remember things. We remember what the poet Thomas Campbell said, the patriot's blood is the seed of freedom's tree. We look back on the sacrifices of others and how they've benefited us and we memorialize them. And this is the story of the, of the followers of God throughout history. There are points and times in which we are told to build monuments to remember what God has done, to remember that suffering isn't purposeless. In fact, James's point is just that. When we look back at what Jesus did and what Jesus went through, it should give us great hope that God sovereignly oversaw the most unjust, terrible thing to ever happen in history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Holy One, and yet managed to superintend all of it to bring about our good, to exalt Christ to the highest place where he's worshipped as he should be, and to 2,000 years later, assemble a group of people together to celebrate that to get, as a church in a small little chapel on the other side of the globe. This is all part of God's beautiful plan. And memorial's a huge part of it. That's why Jesus would have even said the night that he was betrayed, sitting there eating the Passover with his friends, I want you to do this in the future and do it in memory of me. See, we're called to remember what Jesus did. The writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The beautiful reality is we suffer trials to become mature followers of Jesus and that that maturity takes place as we experience the trials and tribulations of life and it draws us into deeper fellowship with him by his spirit. So today, this week, would you join with me just another brother in the faith and that when we see trials and tribulations, we would say, bring it on. Count it all joy. God's about to do something good. And I can't wait to see what it is. Let us pray. Lord, it is our faith that you have already demonstrated very clearly your willingness to superintend and oversee the evil of this world. We have no fear because you are good and you are God. We need not worry. We do, but we need not because you have promised and demonstrated in what you have done through Christ. You have demonstrated that you are not only willing, but able and have decreed from all eternity to take all of our suffering and bring it about to bring about good things in our lives, things that will glorify you, things that will ultimately give us joy that we might seeing the world properly through you with James, the brother of Jesus, Count it joy, count it all joy when we are forced to look to you again. For we give you praise in Jesus' name.